Hi, this is Brent Skousen, the youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. What you're about to hear is a live recording of a university lecture by W. Cleon Skousen as he taught his Old Testament course. We really are fortunate to have these recordings, although at the time they weren't anticipated to be released publicly. As these lectures were recorded live, they are unscripted and unedited. You will feel as though you are actually there. If you are following the Come Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, we have tried to coordinate each lecture with this week's lesson, although there may be some overlap. For those interested in the text Brother Skousen and the students are using, it is published as The First 2,000 Years, written by W. Cleon Skousen, and is available at bookstores or online at skousen2000.com. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! Now, we have some uh, goodies for you today we'll be passing out. Uh, these cost 25 cents last year, and I went ahead and just bought up a lot of them uh, so that you could have them for nothing. And uh, this will give you a background on the ark, the ruins of the ark that they think they've discovered up on the traditional Mount Ararat. <clears throat> While they're passing these out, uh, are any of you from Rick's? College, any of you from Ricks? We have several, good. Uh, Idaho Falls, Rexburg, etc. Anyway, I bring you greetings from Ricks. I uh, spoke at the devotional on Tuesday, and uh, about 4,000 students turned out and just packed the auditorium, and it was, they were just great. They're very much like BYU in every respect, except there aren't so many of them, which has some advantages and possibly some handicaps, but um, they've got a lovely campus, and I've always been impressed with the spirit of that student body and faculty up there. <clears throat> if President McKay had had his way, we'd have now about a dozen of those colleges, but we never could get unanimity, and President McKay said he would wait on the brethren that felt like that was just too much money to spend. President McKay said, well, uh, you can't afford not to spend it, really. And, but he said, I will wait till there's unanimity. And there never was quite. I've lived long enough to realize the Lord's problem with the church. Waiting, waiting, waiting for them to catch up with himself and his prophets. He knows what's good for us. It's just like when he told the people of Jerusalem at the time of Jeremiah. I've got it all set up. The prime minister of Babylon is one of your own people. The three mayors of Babylon are your own people. Now will you stop supporting Egypt and get behind this movement because you will survive. I can bring you through the crisis. No, King Zedekiah says we are going the other route. And they really did. Ended up in disaster and went to Babylon as captives, those who survived. The Lord's always trying to do good for us. And he wanted to expand our educational program. And um, uh, the prophet of the Lord had to wait on the, um, the church, and the church never quite caught up. A few did, but not enough. Well, there's some merit to that. Uh, in other words, we don't want to gather all our people into LDS uh, communities. See, there's been a division on, on whether we should uh, risk our young people in the missionary effort, and it's a real risk. Our casualty rate is terrific when our young people go to uh, non-LDS institutions. Our casualty rate is very high. Uh, or whether we should gather them together, make them a strength, and then let them go forward. So we've, we're trying it both, we've tried it both ways. 
But anyway, it's, I've watched the prophet try to lead the church, and the church will not keep up with him. And those that support the prophet, by and large, a great many of them come from institutions of learning such as BYU and Ricks College, a lot of others too. But I mean, basically, we turn out about an 85% uh, support team for the prophet of the Lord from BYU. They pay their tithes. They go on missions, they remain morally clean, they avoid drugs, they live honest lives, they earn a living, they raise a fine big family. We have about a 15% casualty rate. This is a pure guess on my part, but based on our past experience, this has been about the way it runs. And as I tell my students, I don't want any of them to be casualties. There are some, but I hope it won't be any of my students or anybody I know. I don't want anybody to be a casualty if I could help it. But in any event, I was surely impressed with that visit, and I appreciated your patience with me <clears throat> not being present. And um, I understand you had a little problem with the recorder on the film. Did you in this class, or was it the other one? Was it hard to understand? A little hard to understand? I don't know why that should be. It must have been the um, tape, because the recorder, I've just tested it. It's perfectly all right. But something happened. Now, if you'll take this... Um, a brochure that you have. Don't lose this, by the way. Um, we brought these people to our campus so that our students could hear the scientists that went up on this expedition in 69. And a film, a film was made of it on videotape as I interviewed them on a night program for one hour, and then somebody unfortunately erased it. So um, they showed it a, do a dozen times, I suppose, but then somebody got over-enthusiastic and erased it and wasn't interested in the ark and so down the tube it went. But I just wanted you to hear this story because beginning way back in the days of, um, of Josephus, we had a whole list of historians who had described going up and seeing the ruins of the ark. Now Josephus is about 90 AD, 70 to 90 AD. And he wrote his history of the Jews and he said to the Romans, of course, and that's who he was writing for, the history of the Jews for the Romans. He said, of course, if you didn't believe in the great universal flood, all you'd have to do is go up to, on Mount Ararat and see the ruins of it. And from century to century, we have the same thing having, happening. Marco Polo uh, in the uh, 13th century went up and saw it. He'd been to China. He thought he ought to go up Mount Ararat and see the ark. So he saw it. And then from century to century, a few people were able to get up. Now, it's very difficult to get up to where it is because all of the rock surface of the, uh, the mountain is covered with ice. And then a little bit of debris or tundra will come down on top of the ice, so it looks like dirt. So you go to step on it, and down comes about six inches of rock and dirt from up above, and you're right on slick, solid ice. So to get up that side of the mountain is a very perilous uh, ascent, and very few actually have gone up. Now, it's quite easy to go up the other side of the mountain and to go way on around and come around to where this ruin is located. But it's still up pretty high. You see, you get up around 14,000 feet, 13,500 feet, and you have to get up 14,000 to come on around to come on down. Uh, you'll notice even on top of Mount Timpanogos, your little little huffy and puffy. So um, there aren't very many people that have ascended this. And I just wanted you to um, uh, see what they had accomplished. 
Uh, I think if you look at the front, it will be, that's a good place first. The search team in a major uh, crevasse, which was much larger and deeper in 1955 when F Fernand Navarra saw an estimated 50 tons of hand-hewn beams. Now, he actually photographed them. They were about 140 feet long. He would photograph them through the ice, and the ice had broken away so he could get right down among the timbers, and he chopped off about a five-foot length of one of them and brought it out. And um, none of those countries will let you take artifacts. So he had to chop it up and make it look like firewood and put it in his knapsack as firewood, and the guards let him out with it. And over here on this side, you see some of this wood. And they've attempted to... Um, uh, carbon dated, but it was not a successful effort, and the scientists explained a number of technical reasons uh, which were beyond me. So uh, <clears throat> uh, they just said that uh, the carbon dating was almost 800 to 1,000 years apart by different institutes, so that didn't help at all. But notice down at the bottom picture, you see that's hewn timber, and it's soaked in tar, and it's made into a great multitude of rooms that you can see. And in 1938, one of the um, um, spies, British spies, escaped from the Nazis and came right over that mountain and ran into it and thought it was just an old uh, uh, hunting lodge or something from a long time ago, and the whole end of the ark was above the ice. It was one of those warm summers, and he thought it was a hotel or a fortress or a lodge or something of the ancient past. Just a lot of rooms, that's all he could see, going down into the ice. Well, actually, Mount Ararat, which is located right up here, you see, here's Turkey. It's old Anatolia. It used to be called Anatolia. <coughs> and uh, this is the tallest, highest mountain in this range between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. And it's always been called Mount Ararat. And it used to have, in Josephus's day, it had a little village at the bottom, and it was called the Place of First Descent. I wrote all that up for you in your text. And... Um, Noah and his people, if this is Mount Ararat, and you'll notice that the Bible says mountains in the plural of Ararat, but the inspired version says, no, there was a mountain of Ararat. The range was called something else, just like um, Sinai is a mount on the Horeb range. So this was the mount, and it's the only mountain that goes way, way up. 17,000 feet high, and it's shaped uh, somewhat like this. It comes up like so, and it has a sort of a shelf there, and it goes up higher to 17,000 feet, then it slopes way off down over there, and it's quite easy to ascend on that side. But this is all uh, ice and snow up here, and right in here is this little lake, and right in the bottom of that, rested right down in it, is the ark if it is the ark. And Joseph Fielding Smith said to them after he'd watched the film, he said to uh, Dr. Crawford, well, don't be surprised if it turns out to be the ark. Because he's always felt the flood was universal and, and that uh, this, this would be no wonder to him at all, and uh, of course wouldn't to most of us. Now they went back up in 1970. You notice up here it says expedition to return in 1970. They went back up and the Russian government flew helicopters over, saw them working there, decided they were spies because over on that side of the mountain is Russia. Just across the river. There's a little valley there in the river and on the other side is, is Russia. <clears throat> I don't know why, how they could spy from over here. But ever since we removed our missiles 
um, that were originally put there, Turkey, has stopped standing up to Russia. Uh, Turkey feels that we have really abandoned all of our allies to the communists one at a time, Taiwan being the la latest one to be abandoned, that the people have got in charge of our government who actually are pro-communist or are determined to work out a great world society in which the communist idea of collectivized dictatorship will control. They're convinced that we've given up, at least our leadership has, no matter which party is elected. And all of our history demonstrates that their deduction is correct. And that's why I wrote The Naked Capitalist, to give people a little background on what's been happening and how we lost control of our two parties. In any event, Turkey now is scared to death of Russia because she knows she does not have the backing of the United States any more than Taiwan does. And while we keep talking brave, we keep removing our missiles and our troops. So they, they just realize that they probably are being sacrificed. So the Turks pulled this expedition right off. And Dr. Crawford called me on the phone recently and he said, and now we may get to go up next summer as agents of the Turkish government. They'll, they'll hire us and then they'll say to Russia, we're doing the, ex the, uh, the digging. We're doing it. And he says, we might get away with that uh, because the Turkish government has uh, told us they want to have it dug up, but they don't know how to get rid of the ice. And they had some experts um, from Michigan State and several other universities that have worked out a system that will melt ice very fast by a chemical process. Quite expensive, but they have the money, they think, to achieve it. And if they can get down far enough so they can start photographing and seeing it, why, then they think they'll be on the way. Now, nobody now available to us other than Fernand Navarra, whose picture you see here, um, he's, he's the last one now available to us who's seen any, any amount of the timbers and been close enough when the ice was fairly low down so that you could get some idea of the inside. So he made a miniature ark, and uh, Michael, you notice how much this is like yours. Uh, you've both come to a very similar conclusion. So um, uh, that's kind of exciting to look at it, and the inspired version contradicts the... Um, King James Version, the, the inspired version says there were windows all along the upper deck. The King James says there was a window, but it's plural in the inspired version, and I'm very happy for that because I have worked stock trains before, and I recommend lots of windows, lots of windows. And so it does appear that the ark did have lots of windows. Uh, so that fits. Now, if you'll just put that in your file, you're going to have other people ask you about it and ask you about its history. And now whole books are being written on this subject. But that's one of the best little summaries that I can recommend to you to give you an idea on the background of, of the expedition up Mount Ararat. Now, I want you to keep in mind that this is 13,500 feet above sea level. There are no trees for hundreds of miles around here, and some of those timbers are 140 feet long, <coughs> which means those were tremendous trees that they were cut from. All right, now, if you'll get out your notebook, I want to go through the life of Noah and have you tell me what happened on certain dates. You will notice that the dating system in the first 2,000 years is based on modern revelation from father to son so that we can fix the date of the flood with remarkable accuracy. After Abraham, we're in trouble. Clear down to 600 B.C., which is the next inspired revealed date that's given of the Lord. Between 2000 B.C. and 600 B.C., it's pretty speculative, but within 10 or, I'd say 10 to 20 years. It's not too far off. 
Uh, but the Bible is not clear on Abraham. But everything before Abraham is right on the nubbin. And the Lord says in the book of Revelation and the 88th section that he's done everything in segments of 1,000 years apiece, that the human story is 7,000 years long, which would lead us to uh, rather contradict Bishop Usher of Ireland, who put um, Adam's creation at 4,004. Uh, I've gone through his chronology. I find no basis at all for his 4,004. I think he wanted to be unique. Um, we put it right at 4,000, and if that's the case, then we can tell you the very year that Noah was born after the fall. So on your sheet, would you put down Noah born 2944 B.C. And then ordained age, what was it? What, how old was uh, Noah when he was ordained? You sure? Ten. Only one other person ordained to the priesthood younger than Noah. Who was it? John the Baptist at the age of eight days. Eight days. That's Doctrine and Covenants. Okay. Father Methuselah was left behind by his father. Uh, his father Enoch went, went ahead and got translated and, and the whole city went off to another um, planet where they still remain. We'll return to this earth in the next 30 or 40 years just before the second coming. And Methuselah looks around, and I'm sure he was told in advance that he would be left. He and his son Lamech are left, and his grandfather, Jared, is left. Methuselah's grandfather, Jared, is left. And his great father, grandfather, Mahalaleel, was left. And Canaan was left. And Enos was left. And Adam and Seth were dead, or were gone. So... Enoch was not allowed to take any of the direct line of patriarchal priesthood with him. He took his whole city, all his relatives, and all the righteous of that time, and left his relatives. Adam, Seth are gone. Enos, Canaan, Mahalaleel, Jared are left, together with Jared's grandson, Methuselah, son of Enoch, and great-grandson Lamech, father of Noah. Noah was born two years, two years after the um, city was translated. Yes. Yes, they're still translated. They'll be resurrected at the time they come back to the earth. They'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye and never having gone into the grave. And this will happen to John the Beloved and the three Nephites and all the city of Melchizedek and others who've been translated. They have to go through the change yet. Right. But the Doctrine and Covenant says that they will be quickened, uh, that their quickening will be when they return back to the earth. Other questions? All right. Early ministry. Now, this is exciting because you only have one in the whole scripture, and it's a prophetic verse that tells you about Noah's early ministry. You know nothing about Noah until he was 450 years old from the Bible. That's a long time to live. That's twice as long as the history of the United States that's left out in the Bible concerning the life of this man. And a lot of things happened. Think of all the children he could have had during this time and uh, all the experiences. So early ministry is in Moses 7 and 27, where Enoch had seen a vision of the early ministry of, of Noah and his fathers. And um, 
found that everybody as fast as they were converted to the church were not organized into wards and stakes, what happened to them? Translated. And so you suddenly had the most powerful, wealthy, vigorous civilization on the face of this planet taken and nothing left but only a few families, a veritable handful of priesthood leaders whose task was to go out and convert as many as they could. And as fast as they were converted, they were translated. All right, that's a precious passage which very few members of the church even know about. All right, birth of Japheth, birth of Japheth to Noah. Noah was how old? How old when Japheth was born? You really picked that one up, didn't you? These are pretty good uh, hook dates. I'd hang on to them because we have so few of them. 450. See, I gave that to you just a minute ago inadvertently. He was 450 when his eldest son was born to him who would go through the flood. All his other children having been translated, now there are born to him in his more or less middle life um, the three sons that are going to go through with him. All right, the next important date in his life is uh, put 480. And what happened when Noah was 480? He began his mission to the whole world that would last 120 years. 480. Twelve years after that, the next great event happened when he was 492. Okay, what happened when he was 492? Our great ancestor Shem was born, after whom all the Semitic or Shemite peoples take their descent. The Arabs are Semitic or Shemites. The Jews are Semites. Um, many of the ancient peoples that occupied the Mediterranean basin were proud of the fact that they spoke the language of the Shemites and were descendants of the great patriarch uh, Shem. All right, the next. Now, interestingly enough, Shem was what relation to Japheth? Half-brother or full-brother? Yes, he had the same mother. Uh, she had um, two children, 42 years apart. That's pretty good, isn't it? That reminds me. You want to read an interesting brochure. This is Ensign Magazine. You read this like you read the sports page, and you'll really get something out of it. A lot of people subscribe to this, but very few people read it. It's like the Bible. World's bestseller, but the reading quotient is very low. In here it tells about this wonderful woman who's the oldest member of the church. She's only a convert of a few years, actually. She's now considerably over 120. She had um, uh, 24 children, 20 boys and four girls. Her last baby was born when she was 65. Now that's pretty good. She deserved to be a member of the church. <laughs> and the gospel finally reached her. And there she is in good health, vigor and strength, and a member of the church in Mexico. Now that whole issue is about Latin America. When I was your age, we only had 10,000 members of the church in all Latin America. Today we make that many converts in a year. Got stakes blossoming up in Brazil alone, uh, just like mushrooms almost. Every time I turn around, they got a new mission or a new stake in Brazil. I can't believe it. Fantastic how it's growing. All right. Um, now, we go back to this uh, mother that had a, two children 42 years apart. 
Okay, when Noah was 500, what happened to him? He had his third son that would go through the flood, whose name was Ham. Now, I just want you to re remind you of something. Each one of these three men <coughs> married a girl who was cut off from her family and uh, who died in the flood. In the book of Moses, it says that Noah was very cross with his sons because their daughters kept growing up and marrying outside of the kingdom, which meant that they too would be destroyed in the flood. If they couldn't convert their husbands, obviously they were going to, be, they were going to die in the flood. But their daughters, all their daughters were lost in the flood. All of Noah's granddaughters were lost in the flood. The, law, the plural marriage was in, in force. Mm -hmm. 132nd section. It says, Adam had many families, and so did Noah and all the ancient patriarchs. From Adam on down, they had plurality of families. Um, now, which of these boys held the priesthood? Are you sure? All three of them held the priesthood. And later we're told that the Egyptians who descended from Ham would, would fain have had the priesthood because Ham had it. See, they, they uh, used Ham as their reason for being entitled to the priesthood. Well, you get the priesthood through worthiness, not just lineage. All right? So Noah is 500 and he has this third son who's going to go through the flood with him, whose name was Ham. All three of these men walked and talked with God. All three of these men were... Rather, they must have been quite righteous men. Ham kind of falls out of uh, um, favor with his father and with the Lord after the flood for um, a little incident that happened. But <clears throat> other than that, they all three were sufficiently righteous to walk and talk with God. Now, the two older sons, Japheth and Shem, married... Um, girls who were of the kingdom, either converted them or married someone who didn't get translated or something. Uh, but uh, Ham married a beautiful girl who was a descendant of whom? Cain. And she appears to have been a righteous girl. And she, her name meant forbidden. Now, when Joseph Smith first put her name in, it's a very complicated name. I used to be able to bring it off the top of my head, but I can't today. Uh, but then he said the land uh, that we call Egypt was named after her. But nobody would be able to see the connection because the, the land of Egypt is now changed. So Joseph Smith transliterated the word, as a, a translator is allowed to do, and gave her the transliter transliterated form of Egyptus, after whom Egypt was named, so that we would get the connection. I'll have to go back and look. Yes, I know it is. But I don't, I don't think it was, I've, but I've forgotten. I'm, I'm going to have to go back. Uh, but but these, are, these are wonderful, interesting details. If you get into church history and uh, the ancient scripture studies, there are just lots of exciting things here that are hidden away. Now, he, he married this beautiful girl. She had uh, a daughter, and they named her Egyptus too because, of course, she would be also of the Canaanite blood. And then uh, the second Egyptus had a son whose name she named Pharaoh. And, it, and she took this son down into Egypt 
They settled the land, found it underwater when they first got there, but as the water receded, uh, they established a family there and they gradually populated that area. And uh, they did everything they could, even though they couldn't hold the priesthood, they did everything they could to do it righteously, just like God had said. The original Pharaoh was a very righteous man. But his descendants would fain have claimed the priesthood through Ham. But after that, they would fain have claimed the priesthood through Shem. They switched. They switched. And so the pharaohs began to be called the high priest of Shem, which in Egyptian is Sam. And when Father Lehi was naming his sons, he named one of them Shem, or in the Egyptian form, Sam. That's who Sam was. Sam was the same as Shem. It was not an abbreviation for Samuel. It was a very distinctive Egyptian name which meant Shem. And the Pharaoh said, and I am the great high priest after the holy order of Shem. Later called, uh, and later they called it the order of Melchizedek. And before the flood they called it the order of Enoch. But the scripture says the real name is the holy order of the Son of God. That's the real name of the priesthood. But if you had the priesthood of Enoch, did you have power? Boy, everybody knew what Enoch could do with the priesthood. If you had the priesthood of Shem, were you respected? Everybody appreciated that. And later on, further down the trail, several generations later, we have Melchizedek rise up, and he had so much great priesthood power that out of respect for the name of deity, so they wouldn't have to use it over and over again, they called it the great priesthood of Melchizedek. And when Paul was arguing with the Jews, he said, you know who this Jesus the Christ was? He was a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He could have said he was a high priest after his own order, but that wouldn't have meant much, would it? All right. Now there was a hand right up here, yes. Yeah. When you go on a tour with me to Egypt, I'll take you into the mummy room of the Archaeological Museum in Cairo. And there they are the mummies from the earliest days in front of you. Dynasty after dynasty of the greedy great ones and you'll have no problem distinguishing what the early ones were. The word Egypt, you see, is Greek. It is not Egyptian at all. And what does it mean? Black. Dark. Black. So you can see where the pharaohs from dynasty to dynasty changed. Dynasty means a new family, you see. And the early ones, the features are there. You can very definitely tell that they are, they are Hamitic people. Well, he was depicting 1300 B.C., you see, and they were white then. In fact, the Libyans had come down. Nearly all of the pharaohs during that period were Libyans. They weren't even Hamitic. Well, you see, the, the, by this time, there, is no, there isn't much difference in the skin coloring by 1300. See, Moses is way down. Um, Cecil B. DeMille picked out a pharaoh about 1350 B.C. Actually, Moses was in there at about 1500 B.C., um, but already many of the pharaoh dynastic families, uh, the, the whole racial pattern had changed. It was highly homogenized. Right. Hand back here. I mean, why did they use Melchizedek? Well, it, it was, supposing we had um, uh, a great uh, miracle worker rise in our midst um, 
like an Enoch, for example, that he could turn water back against itself and mountains move from its foundations. The earth would shake and a whole peninsula shoot up out of the East Sea. And I'm, a, I'm abroad, you see, and they say, who are you? And I say, well, uh, I'm Elder Skousen. What are you preaching for? Because I'm under commission to preach. By whose authority? I have the authority after the order of Enoch. Oh, you do? What have you got to say? <laughs> you see, it made a difference. When, when um, Melchizedek came along, he became the best known high priest among all the peoples after the flood. And therefore to say, and I have the authority after the order of Melchizedek, boy, that meant something. So when Paul talked to the Jews, he said that Jesus, the Christ that you crucified, he was a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That's who you killed. Boy, they, that, that meant something in the book of Hebrews. Yes, the question is, um, where do we get the statement that um, uh, the word Sam is the same as Shem? This is in Brother Nibley's book, Introduction to the Book of Mormon. It's also in my book, Hidden Treasures from the Book of Mormon, with sources cited. After the order of Shem or Sam. Yes, they would say that. The Pharaoh would say, I am the high priest after the holy order of Shem. And that meant, uh, boy, the high order priesthood. They didn't say Ham anymore, you see, because everybody had recognized Shem as the direct heir to, um, to Father Noah. Uh, you see, he superseded Japheth, and Japheth became the father of the whom? Father of whom? All the Gentile nations, the Slavic peoples, uh, and the, um, the Eastern um, peoples carry lots of the blood of Japheth in them, and you and I have a lot of the blood of Japheth in us. We came out from among the Gentiles ourselves, out of uh, Gaul and um, out of Scandinavia and out of Britannia and so forth. So we have a lot of Gentile blood in us, but we have that wonderful strain of Joseph in us too, and that to those people the Lord assigned spirits who would recognize the voice of the Master and respond to the restored message and then be the leaven to help others accept the gospel. As far as we know, the Mongols and the Eastern peoples um, are Japhethites, as are the Slavic peoples. Now, the original Chinese and Japanese, before the Mongols came in with the, with the very strong uh, uh, DNA genetic uh, that changed a little bit on the eye formation, uh, the Melanesian people, for example, down south that never did mix with the Mongolian tribes, they don't have that. But the Tartars of Russia and others, they have it. So that Mongolian blood is very strong wherever it went. And of course, they for many centuries were the rulers of China and they uh, drifted over into Japan. We have um, uh, Aryan people in, as the original founders of Japan. And uh, they're up in the Northern Island now and living on the caveman level. But they, um, they are not of the Melanesian nor the Mongolian strain. They're by themselves. Caucasian uh, strain. So the Mongolian people seem to have been just a special interbreeding until that, that eye slant which characterizes Oriental people uh, that we speak of. That really is just from one group of people. And as they interbred with the other Melanesians and Japanese and others, they gave that characteristic that um, is, uh, tip of, is considered typical, just as our Lamanite brethren have a characteristic that's typical. Our Scandinavians, we expect them all to be blonde, you know, and skiers and so forth. And I get over there and I get some 
some little black-headed fellows that are Scandinavians too, and little short ones besides. They're Alpian, uh, actually from the Alpian race. From the, from the Hamitic peoples. With each dynasty, you get a new family. And uh, some, some of the dynasties, we know who the new order is. And after about, uh, you get down into about the sixth and seventh and eighth dynasties, already they're admitting that they are mercenaries from outside of Egypt who came in as warriors and soldiers, fought their way up to the top. Uh, the pharaohs became dissipated and there was a military coup. So you got a new dynasty, a new bloodline, a new set of royalty, and altogether they had about 28 dynasties. Pardon? Right. Now you have to be a little bit careful about the color of the hair because the, um, I asked the um, curator of the museum about that. Nearly all their hair is blonde. Even if it's kinky and was once black, it's blonde. And that was done by the embalming fluid. So the color of the hair at this time, even on the mummies, is, is not um, singular. Yeah, yeah, that's right. The features change. You can watch them. Those early dynasties are, are very obviously uh, hermetic. And then they change to the other character. You can just see them lying there in their, their beds and uh, in their glass cases and see the change. Now, I just have two minutes. Will you put down these additional dates? Noah lost his father. The death of Lamech occurred five, when Noah was 595. And Methuselah died when Noah was 600. And when Methuselah died, what did this say to Noah? The flood comes this year. Because that's what his, men, his name meant. With his death come the great floods. And then... Um, the ark was finished that year, and the great flood commenced that year. So that was a real uh, interesting uh, affair. Now, those are just a few of the little technicalities I wanted to get across, and I'm going to catch up with you in our next lecture on Tuesday. I want you to remember that as soon as we are finished with the first 2,000 years, you get your examination. So I'd be going back and reviewing your chapters every once in a while, kind of keep up.